After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it whose curse, who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide, my, hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, but I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt the ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why, why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. There they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it doesn't happen, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Wow, well, how about that passage for Bible memorization? <laughs> you know, why can't it be for God to love the world, you know? That's a dark chapter, isn't it? I think Job chapter 3 is probably one of the darkest places. Now, I think it is the darkest passage in all of scriptures. And so this morning, in a sense, this isn't a, a happy sermon. But you read other places like Psalm 88, for instance. Some people call Psalm 88 the basement of the psalm. Psalm 88 ends with this phrase, darkness is my only friend. That's pretty dark, isn't it? But thank the Lord, most of us, haven't been where the psalmist, Psalm 88, who wrote, darkness is my only friend. Or you haven't been, thank the Lord, where Job has been. Maybe you've glimpsed it from afar. Certainly you've probably known people in your own life who've felt these thunder clouds coming upon the horizon of their life. They've heard the rumbling of thunder and they're fearful. But you've probably never cursed the day in which you were born. You've seen the darkness, maybe. But you've never cursed God. You've never said, curse it is my birthday so what's the application you know such a dark section in scripture job 3 what's the application for us you know many of us you, you skip over you read your bibles and you you get to the old testament genealogies you're like well i could kind of skip that you know it's like two or three chapters of so and so begat so and so and so and so begat so and so and you kind of skip those and then you get to job chapter 3 and the temptation is you want to skip job 3 you really like chapter 1 and 2 and you like the end chapters of job but you skip the whole middle section and you skip job 3 what's the application for us this morning well first of all praise the lord if you've never been there where job has been 
some of you maybe have been there. Maybe some of you perhaps are there right now. Maybe privately, if not publicly, privately you're thinking you never thought that you would utter things like Job has said. The outbursts. And so what do you do when you're struggling? You vent, don't you? Everybody ever vented before? That's what Job's doing here. He's venting. You never thought, you never signed up that the Christian life isn't meant to be this. This is not what I signed up for when I trusted Jesus, when I gave him my heart. You know, others, beloved, have gone there before you. If you've ever read any of the writings of Martin Luther, the great reformer, oh, beloved, he could be so dark sometimes when he lamented what was going on in his life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, many of y'all know who he is, the Prince of Preachers. He was pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. 10,000 or so people could fit in his sanctuary at the final evolution of his sanctuary. 10,000 folks could fit in there and hear him preach. One day while he was preaching, somebody yelled out the word fire. We don't know why, if it was an attack of the enemy or they were just trying to be funny, but somebody yelled out fire. That caused such a stampede of people trying to exit the sanctuary that many people were killed that day. It broke Charles Spurgeon. It brought him to a place of such depression and spiritual despair that he had to quit preaching for about six months because he was brought so low. Moses, what about the Old Testament characters? I was just reading in Numbers. My Bible reading plan has me in Numbers this last few weeks. And Moses in Numbers chapter 11, it's almost like I'd never read this passage before. Do you remember when God's people are in Israel? God delivers them, or Egypt, sorry. God delivers them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, the wilderness wanderings for many, many years. They're hungry. They're missing the food that they had in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the meat. All they're eating is manna and bread, and so they're lamenting to Moses. They're really angry with the Lord, and so they cry out to God, kind of in a sense griping against the Lord, and they gripe against Moses. They turn on Moses. Listen to what Moses says in Chapter 11 of Numbers, he says, God, and this is his prayer. I'm reading you his exact words, what he prays. God, where am I to get meat for all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all of these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. Listen to what he says. God, if you treat me like this, I'm not making this up. He says, please kill me here and now. That's the ESV version. Moses lamenting. Elijah, we meet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. What does Elijah cry out? He cries out and he asks the Lord to take his life. Jeremiah, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 20, do you know Jeremiah quotes Job 3 almost directly? Isn't that interesting? It's like Jeremiah had memorized this passage. Now maybe you're wondering, why is this chapter even in our Bibles at all? What's the point? Let me give you an experiment. Say if you had your Bible and it was up to you, you had the opportunity to put God's Word, the Bible, together yourself, would you include Job chapter 3? Would you? You probably wouldn't. You probably wouldn't put it in there because some of, you, some of us probably, quite frankly, we're just embarrassed by it. You, know, you read it out loud, it makes you feel uncomfortable. No Christian should utter statements like this. And so even there are some people who want to condemn Job. They read Job chapter 3 and they want to rush in and they want to condemn Job for the things that he even said. But listen, beloved, that's not the point here. Please listen. We desperately need to hear Job this morning. We desperately need to listen to what Job says here because this is a curse 
followed by a lament. Uh, verses 1 through 10 are a curse. Job curses the day that he was born. And then uh, verses 11 through the end of the chapter is a lament. Job is venting here. Have you ever vented before? And remember, Job, much of Job is poetry. So what Job's saying here is poetry. And he's venting as he's writing this poetry. If you've ever been in the throes of some kind of unimaginable tragedy or something's faced you, some kind of circumstance, and you don't know which way to turn, you've probably vented before, haven't you? You've probably, as a believer, you want to say, like Job said in chapter 1, Oh God, the Lord you have given, you have taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or you want to be able to say, as Job responded to his wife, Shall I receive good from the Lord and also not receive evil from him? That's what you want to do, but yet you vent because of the trials that you're facing or your loved one's facing. That's the, we need to appreciate the background here of what Job's saying, first of all. How could Job say what he said in chapter 1 and say what he said in chapter 2 and then we get to chapter 3 and he says the things that he says? How come? What's up with that? Well, here are several things. First thing we see here is time. Time. Job's three friends have come. We saw that at the end of chapter 2. We'll get in, Lord willing, more into the friends next week. But here they've come with Job. They've been good friends. They've come and sat with Job for a week in silence. Probably that's the best thing they ever did was not open their mouths. Then in chapter one of cha- uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, he says there's, an, there's this indeterminate expression after this. Now, how long is after this? Here's a rule of thumb. If you, somebody in your family, maybe you've experienced the death, you've experienced bereavement, isn't it kind of societally a hard and fast rule to, a rule of thumb that maybe after six weeks or so, after you've visited with them and been with them, but after six weeks or so, you drop them a note, right, or you send them a text and say, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you. And, you know, six weeks, that's a long time. A week is an extreme, it feels like an eternity here for Job, six weeks. Well, this happened to Job, this realization, Job's thinking, listen, I think I felt like this is a dream. Job feels like he's in a, in a dream, but listen, it's not a dream. It's not some nightmare that he wakes up from, isn't it? It's a reality that he loses everything. He loses his 10 children, and he's discovering that this is true. And, and just the, the unchangeability of death and bereavement, the loss of his children, he realizes it's true. He thought, he says, you know, essentially he's saying, I thought I was going to wake up, and this was just going to be a bad dream, but this is real. And so things begin to, to seek in, sink in. That routine of loneliness has developed. If you've ever lost someone, you know what it's like those few weeks, months afterwards where just that loneliness seems to creep in and life, you realize his life is never going to be the same again. And his friends, they've said nothing, at least to this point. Maybe that's a blessing that they haven't said anything, but even I think it could be that the reason that they haven't said anything to him is because it's an act of judgment. They've got nothing to say. And so we can psychoanalyze this and say that one of the first things that you should do when somebody's experiencing bereavement or loss, that you should empathize with them. You've got to just be there for them. But maybe the reason Job's friends haven't said anything right now is because they really don't have anything of value to say. They're really no help to them. Maybe that's why Job's wife said to him, curse God, Job, curse God and die. Maybe Maybe it had begun to echo as he's going through this grief, just unimaginable grief and bereavement. Maybe it's beginning to echo in Job's mind that maybe my wife was right. Maybe if I go ahead and just curse God and get this over with, maybe that's the course of action that I should take. 
Or maybe it's the silence of God that caused Job to vent like he did in chapter 3. Where is God in all of this? You ever thought that? Where is God? There's no word of God here. There's no revelation to me. There's no providential confirmation from God. Nothing. All he hears is the silence of God. See, that's the background here. We need to appreciate that. And then secondly, there's there's certain feelings that Job expresses here in chapter 3 where he vents. There's certain expressions that he says here in chapter 3 that are shocking, quite honestly. Verse 1, what does he do? He curses the day that he was born. You know, when your child is born, the nurse delivers the child, and the midwife or the doctor that delivers the child, it's a boy, right? And it's the birthday. It's, it's a time of joy and celebration. But Job said on that day, let it be removed from the calendar. He's going back to the day if he, as if he could remember the day he was born and said, don't say it's a boy. Wipe my day and name off the calendar as if it had never been. Verse 8, he says, let Leviathan, we'll hear more about the Leviathan in chapter 41, but the Leviathan here in context is a symbol of chaos and disorder and dysfunction. He said, let the Leviathan just come and consume my past so as, as I, I had never existed. He's venting. Then he turns into this full-blown lament. And you know, there, there are psalms that are not even as dark as Job 3. There are psalms of lament, but Job 3 is so dark. He wishes... You'd never been born. Have you ever said that? I wish I'd never been born. You ever thought that? It's okay if you hadn't said it, but you probably, likely, I've thought it before. Gosh, you struggle with something and you're just like, I wish I'd never been born. This battle of faith, you see, is erupting in Job's mind. His, his belief in God, his understanding of who God is, of what God is like. Why didn't I just die at birth? He describes it almost like a stillborn child that's never seen the day, the, the, the light of day. What? Why is light, he says, given to someone who's in misery? What's the point, he says, of existence? What's the point of light? What's the point of life, I mean? He longs for death. Now, some people have read into this and think, well, gosh, Job's being suicidal here. Now, these aren't suicidal thoughts that Job's having. He's venting. But, you know, Christians can commit suicide, can't they? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that to approve of it, but I'm saying that it has happened. It happens. Believers who couldn't hold on in life and turn to take their own life, it happens. Is it appropriate? Certainly not. But let me dispel a myth for you, a myth for you, myth for you because the myth is, well, if a Christian kills himself, that is what? The unpardonable sin. That they can't go to heaven. It's a one-way ticket to hell. That's Roman Catholic theology. Roman Catholic theology essentially teaches that before you can assure somebody of eternal life, the last rites must be performed. And if you kill yourself, in the case of suicide, last rites cannot be performed, and thus suicide is a mortal sin. That's Catholic theology. Now, that, that is not Protestant theology. Protestants do not believe that. We don't believe Scripture teaches that. Suicide isn't some one-way ticket to hell. Christians can and have tragically committed suicide, but I do believe they are with the Lord if they have trusted in Christ. You see, that's not what the issue is here. That's what, not, not what Job is thinking here. There's an ache, there's a pain so deep and driven into Job's life that he doesn't see how he could possibly go on anymore. He speaks in verse 20 of this misery and of bitterness. In verse 24, he says of sighing and groaning. His, 
his worst nightmares have become reality. What does he say? I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest when trouble comes. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, and by the way, that just file that away in your filing cabinet of books you should get or read someday, especially as you face grief, the loss of someone. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed after his wife Joy, his beloved wife Joy, died of cancer. Listen to what he says in A Grief Observed after the death of Joy, his wife. He says, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself and not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. Not that he's, he says, not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I, I'm not worried about not believing in God. I'm worried about what I will believe about him after I've go, gone through this grief. See, that's where Job is too. This is where Job is at. He's not in danger of chucking his faith. He's not tempted here to become an atheist or to refuse to believe that God doesn't exist. What he's being tempted with is this, of what God is is like. Lewis goes on in that paragraph and he says, the conclusion that I dread, Lewis said, is not that there is no God after all, but the conclusion I dread is this. So this is what God is really like. (laughs) Deceive yourself no longer. Lewis is saying. You know, what do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of, of God because I know God is good? Have you ever have, have those folks who said that they ever been to a dentist before? You know, you go to the dentist and they cut the drill on and they you know, they no matter how much they've numbed you, you can still feel the vibrations through your skull, right? And you're holding onto the chair or you're being a good boy and resting your hands in your lap, you know, and the drill is on. See, that's the issue here. Job is tempted to think that God is just some kind of arbitrary, whimsical God, that he's just some plaything in this sovereign providence of God, or maybe even worse, that there's some mean streak in God. It's shocking, isn't it? I mean, some of you here today and this morning, you're young believers. You're young Christians. You're still excited about your faith, and I hope all of us are. You're excited about Jesus, but you, you feel that, you know, just you've been a Christian for now a short couple of years and you still feel head over heels with Jesus and love with Jesus and the gospel and you feel the energy of the Holy Spirit empowering you day by day and you're just, to you, this, you're a million miles away from this. And then there are some of you here this morning, you've thought about these things, haven't you? And you've begun to doubt the character of God. You don't, you don't, you know, I, yeah, I believe in God, sure. But you begin to doubt His character. You begin to doubt his goodness. You know, the circumstances in your life are kind of making you reassess what God is really like as you face the trials and the difficulties that you're working through. So let me take you, let me ask you in the third place. What do we make of Job 3? What are the, you know, you read Job 3 and you're like, how in the world could there be any practical takeaways from this, right? But there are. A couple of things here I want us to see. Let me actually suggest four things that we make of Job 3 here. First of all, this, beloved, this is God's inerrant and infallible word, including Job chapter 3, right? 
What does Timothy tell us that God's word is? What's the worth and the value of God's word? Timothy says that this is the infallible, inerrant word of God, and therefore it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in the way of righteousness so that the man or the woman of God might be thoroughly furnished with uh, thoroughly, blah, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. You know, it's not just the 23rd Psalm that you love that's the word of God or the red letter sayings of Jesus that are word. It's all of this, God, all of the Bible, all of Scripture is infallible and inerrant and it is for your profit and your blessing and your benefit, including this dark chapter, Job 3. It has something to say to you. It has something to teach you. It's got something to warn you about. It's got something to help you. And then secondly, this chapter teaches us that we need to be sensitive to what believers can do and what they experience. You know, if you, if you ever travel via airline, I often, well, not often, I fly every once in a while, and usually I like to fly on Delta. It just seems to be, I like Delta, right? They don't kill animals like the other airlines, so. No, I mean, you know, I'll just pick Delta, for instance, and you get on the puddle jumper here from Roanoke to Charlotte. It's never a big plane, right? It's usually the small little prop planes. You know the ones where it's like every bolt and nut in that thing is shaking and vibrating as it's taking off. You know, it's taking off and like, is this plane going to hold together, right? And you make it by God's grace to Charlotte. But the flight attendant, you know, you kind of halfway listen to her. She gives her spiel and she says, well, we might be flying over water. You're flying over Lake Norman or something. And there's a life preserver. You're sitting on it. And there's a whistle and there's going to be a light. And so, you know, if the plane crashes at 500 miles an hour coming down from 35,000 feet. Make sure you grab that life jacket. Well, that life jacket's not going to do you any good. It's going to be Jesus time, isn't it? <laughs> you know? You're going to be splashed down in the middle of nothing. It'll be disintegrated. That life vest isn't going to be of any help to you whatsoever. But as the plane is taking off, you've never probably said, I don't have a life jacket here. I'm not sitting up. Stop the plane. You just don't do that, do you? You assume, right, that it's there, that you might need it one day. You know, you can't imagine the circumstances where you might need it one day, but that life jacket and whistle is there if you need it, right? That's Job 3. I'm so glad Job 3 is in the Bible. I hope I never need it. Beloved, I hope you never need it. And I've never been where Job is, ever. You know, honestly, I don't know anybody in life who's been as, in, in such deep darkness as Job has been. I've glimpsed on the horizon dark clouds coming sometimes. I've never cursed the day I was born. I've never blurted out to God, I wish I had never been born. I guess I probably thought it maybe. But some of you have, haven't you? At some moment in your life, you've probably been there. And Beloved, can I just assure you if you've been there, look at me. You're not alone. You're not alone. I mean, Job, who was considered the, one of the godliest men who ever lived, God even said that about him, that he was a godly man. You're not alone, beloved. You can find yourself there and find hope that you're not alone. There's another lesson. I think this is an important one. You know, isn't it extraordinary that we read Job 3, that God doesn't rush in and go, yep, yep, shut that mouth, Job. You can't say that, Job. You're not allowed to say that. Stop saying it. Stop it, Job. God doesn't condemn him here, does he? Matter of fact, God doesn't say anything until we get to Job chapter 38. Now, should have Job said the things that he said? Of course not. 
He's venting. Isn't it extraordinary the patience that God has with Job here, isn't it? You know, we know of Job's patience, that he was a patient man. We know of his perseverance. God even says that about him, that he's incredibly patient. But, oh, beloved, don't miss the patience of God here with Job. Joni Erickson Tata, many of y'all know who she is. Joni is a, uh, a quadriplegic. She is a prolific writer and speaker at conferences. Uh, actually, in seminary, our, our seminary shared offices with Joni Erickson Ministries. And so I got to meet her, just a remarkable lady. Joni Erickson Tata was uh, a normal high school kid, you know, had all abilities. She was an athlete, played hockey, I mean, just an incredible athlete. But she was out swimming with her family one day in the Chesapeake Bay. She dove off the, the, the pier or the whatever and didn't realize the shallowness of the bay that she jumped in, and she broke her neck, and it caused her to become a quadriplegic. Listen to what she says about this. This is so good. She says, for some odd reason, it comforted me to realize that God didn't condemn me for plying him with questions about her paralysis and why. I didn't have to worry about insulting God for my outbursts in times of stress and of fear and pain. My despair wasn't going to shock God. God, according to the book of Job, is never threatened by our questions. So did I find answers for the deepest, dark, darkest questions about life with total paralysis? Just one, she said, and it is enough. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You know, don't be too quick. Beloved, don't be too quick with your judgments and your condemnations when others find themselves in extremely dark places. Learn how to counsel them like God counsels Job here. Then finally, the Hebrew, what I'll call the Hebrews 4.15 principle. The Hebrews 4.15 principle. Hebrews 4.15 says this. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like we are, yet he was without sin. Here's the ultimate comfort. Why does Job 3 exist? Because it's a precursor to the sufferings that Jesus would face. You know, what does Jesus know of Job chapter 3? There's the question. When you read Psalm 88, or you hit Job chapter 3, or you hit other dark chapters in Scripture about suffering, what is, that's the question. What does G Jesus know of the darkness of Job 3 or Psalm 88 or other passages? He knows, doesn't he? He knows what it's like to come before his heavenly Father. And say, Father, I, I don't want to go down this road. God, I, is there some other way, Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus knows, doesn't he? He knows what it's, what it's like to find himself in a providence in which he seems to lose all sense of God's presence and love and assurance. And he cries out from the cross, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beloved, we have a Savior who knows what it feels like. He knows he knows what it feels like as though his Father, God, has abandoned him. Beloved, what a Savior we have. So if you find yourself in a dark place, I remember I went to high school here in Virginia. I'm from South Carolina, but I went to boarding school. I was one of those kids. I had to go to boarding school. I went to boarding school in Charlottesville, right outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, for three years. 
one of our teachers really loved to go spelunking. If you don't know what that is, it's going caving. Supposedly, there are a lot of caves around this area. But anyway, we, we would go caving with Reverend Kettlewell. He was our religion teacher. And he would go, and we would wear these gas lanterns or whatever. And he would take us. We would be crawling on our bellies and on our backs through these mud holes and tunnels and all that. And we'd get into these big caverns. And Middle Earth is what it felt like. And Mr. Kettlewell would say, all right, boys, turn your lamps off. So we cut our lamps off. I'll give you a minute, he said, for your eyes to acclimate to the darkness. You don't know what darkness is if you've never been in a cave in the middle of the earth. It is so dark. There is no ambient light whatsoever. So after five minutes' time, he says, all right, hold your hand up to your face. See if you can see the outline of your fingers. You couldn't. You could literally do this, and you could not see your fingers. You ever experienced that? Maybe that's where you are right now. You, in a sense, feel like that emotionally. You feel like that spiritually. You're in such a dark place. You can't see anything in front of you. You don't see the path. Let me encourage you, would you kneel down, ground yourself, and feel that there is a footprint that has gone there before you. That Jesus has gone there before you, beloved. What does Hebrews 4.15 say? That we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, who cannot be touched with the feeling of our brokenness and infirmities, but in all points he was tempted like us, yet he was without sin. Beloved, I have a Savior this morning. You have a Savior this morning who knows the darkness of Job 3. You do. And I can go and I can lean upon him and I can say, Jesus, I, I can't do this. I can't. I, I, I can't take another step. I, Jesus, lift me up. Lift me up, Jesus. I lift my eyes into the heavens. Where does my help come from? It help, my help comes from the Lord God Almighty. Lift your eyes. Jesus, lift me up and help me. I, I don't have the energy to keep going on, Jesus. Beloved, he will help you, I promise. He will help you. And he indeed, if you trust Christ, He will carry you all the way through. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. This um, indeed is a dark passage. Probably many of us are even confused by it. We we read this and we just, we scratch.